0: Well, indeed, it is only the people who know Jesus Christ who can say such a thing. That in a world of trouble, where Satan buffets and sea billows of grief roll, roll, that we can say that indeed it is well with our soul. I hope that is your testimony this morning. I'd like to invite you to turn back again to Psalm chapter 5, which Benny has read for us. And so you have already heard, we'll be referencing the text throughout our time together this morning, and let me lead us in a word of prayer, asking for God's blessing on his word. Oh God, we pray that this morning, that as your word is proclaimed, that the weaknesses or ability of the speaker or the distractions in this place, or the heaviness of this text, that none of these things would get in the way of you accomplishing that which you intend. We pray, Father, that this morning that you would search our hearts and that you would change our attitudes, that you would renew in our minds and renew in our hearts a sense of your glory, Help us to feel the weight of sin. Help us to feel the danger of hell. And help us to see the magnificent beauty of Jesus Christ. Only you can accomplish these things, so we entrust them to your care now. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, last week in our meditation on Psalm chapter 4, we asked the question of how a Christian should go to bed. How a Christian should go to bed, and that is in a world of trouble, of apprehension, of danger, and of sorrows. How do we shut it all down and sink into unconsciousness? And the question was answered as we came to Psalm chapter 4 by By saying, in short, to completely surrender our lives and our troubles and our efforts to the Lord who is our true avenger and protector. Psalm chapter 4 verse 8 ended with David saying, It is in peace that I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. But the Bible is not a world of fantasy or of fairy tales. It is full of stark realism. It doesn't teach us to just have faith and to ignore our troubles or make light of them. But instead, it teaches us how we are to face the trouble of this life. In Psalm chapter 5, which the astute will notice comes after Psalm chapter 4, the psalmist wakes up. He went to bed in, verse, in chapter 4, and he has waken in chapter 5. If you look down at verse 3, you'll notice this is a morning psalm. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice. In fact, if we were to study Psalms 3 through 6 in succession, we would notice this is a repeated pattern. Chapter 3, Psalm 3, is a psalm for the morning. And Psalm 4 is a psalm for the evening. Psalm 5 is a psalm for the morning. And then Psalm 6, again, a psalm for the evening. And of course, all this comes after Psalm chapter 1. Perhaps you will remember this familiar passage which describes the habit of the prosperous man. Do you remember Psalm 1? How it says, in his, it is, his delight is in the law. And on his law, he meditates, when church, day and night. And so do you see the pattern that is established for us in the song book of the church? In the prayer book of the Christian? That is, if you want to be happy, if you want to be blessed, then hear God's design for your life. The happy man, the blessed man is in the habit of beginning and ending each day in prayer, in silent meditation on God's Word, in speaking to God and hearing His voice. My friends, I know that we can't see God, and I know that He often feels different, d- distant. And I know that there's a great temptation for us to assign God to some part-time role in our lives, to relegate Him to Sunday mornings or perhaps Sunday nights, where you come and sing half-heartedly, where you come as about expectant as a child bored while running errands with his mother. But do you see that God is not some part-time deity? He is not begging for your attention, for a portion of your priorities, but rather he is the single greatest, the all-consuming reality of our lives. Colossians says that our whole existence is found in him. And so you see that the pattern of the Psalms reminds us that it is totally fitting to Begin and end each day in prayer, crying out to Him and inviting Him to examine our lives, welcoming His correction. God intends for our entire lives to be enveloped in prayer and worship. And so, if I, if I could ask you this morning, how are you doing on that? This has convicted me this week. How are you doing? On that, what percentage of your thoughts were Godward this week? How much of your time does the God of the universe occupy? I think it's a question worth pondering. But as I said, this is a psalm for the morning where we transition from the grave like activity of sleep, where we have been useless to the world, to daylight. And, action. and yet we must remember that God has been active all night. Isn't that comforting? He's been active all night. While you have been drooling into your CPAP machine, God has been at work. He's been delivering oxygen molecules to plankton in the South Pacific. He has been securing food for a hundred different species of fishing spiders. He's been knitting unborn children together in the wombs of millions of mothers. As the sun rises and as your caffeine of choice begins to kick in, you realize that your day is likely full of trouble. In a world where we cannot control all the circumstances, the light brings a greater sense of this danger. Oh yeah. I have to face that doctor's appointment today. Oh, I have to have that conversation. It brings a new sense of dread. This is a sensation that millions of American soldiers in every war have experienced in their own way. One of many examples of this was during World War II in the Pacific Battle on the island of Peleliu, where there were Numerous accounts, as you might have heard, of the miserable nights spent by Marines of the 1st Division. Miserable nights wondering if the Japanese would skirmish their lines and their foxholes. Most nights, the Japanese would send a small number of soldiers to attack the lines during the night, and Marines would never know if they were just being harassed by a squad of enemy soldiers, or if it was a whole Japanese regiment that they would wake up and discover. Darkness covered it. That's what happened at the Battle of Teneru, the Battle of Alligator Creek, where Japanese forces attacked Marines during the night, but it wasn't until daybreak that the Marines realized how threatening the force really was. Once the sun came up, they could see how numerous their enemies were. Now, while the dangers of civilian life are remarkably different, the same phenomenon is true. As the sun comes up, we see our problems. We must face our problems head on. And the the biggest, most significant, most dangerous problem in our life is evil. Our greatest enemy is evil. And the overarching lesson of this psalm is that we desperately need God's help to discern and to distinguish what the problem really is, who the enemy really is. We need God's help to see and understand the danger. For unlike the eventual clarity of battle, the nature of our spiritual battle, is often that we struggle to see the work of the enemy. For his work is, in major part, an effort to lull us back to sleep, to make us ignorant of how dangerous he really is, to to blind us to the manipulation of his schemes. And so in Psalm chapter 5, David is pleading for discernment, that God would help him understand evil and give him wisdom to orient his life in a way that is right before the Lord, in a path that is straight and safe. Now, we don't have time to work through each line of this psalm in depth today, but as Benny mentioned, there are two broad patterns in this psalm. David is contrasting two types of people. He's contrasting the wicked with incredibly strong language, and then he's contrasting that with the way of the Lord. The wicked man who loves evil and a righteous God who despises evil. And we will look at each in turn, but I'd like for you to first look at the opening of this psalm where David reminds us again of the importance of beginning each day with prayer, verses 1 through 3. You'll notice that's what David does. The morning is repeated twice for emphasis, reminding us that as we wake, we are so needy, so dependent, that it would be foolish for us to venture out on our own without acknowledging the existence of God and our need for him. Yet how often do we take him for granted? How sad is it that for many of us, Facebook has this more sensational pull in the morning. The text uses several different words here to describe David's prayer. In verse 1, he calls them my words. Then again, he calls his prayer my, my groaning the word that's used here, it's a sense of sighing, of quiet murmurs in the heart. These are the whispers of the soul that are perhaps spoken so quietly and so timidly that no one else can hear. But then in verse 2, David calls his prayer a cry, like the desperate groans of the wounded. And what I would like to simply point out to you this morning is that God hears all kinds of prayers. Sometimes, when we have clarity, we are able to put our prayers into carefully articulated words with lots of adjectives, right? Lots of holy gods. We're able to really articulate what it is our heart is crying out. But then there's other times... Where our prayers are more more desperate. They're more like groans, inarticulate. Groans of pain or distress. Perhaps we're simply bemoaning our spiritual dullness. Other times our prayers are the quiet whispers of our heart. Times where we may be ashamed or may lack clarity or just, just don't know what to say. We're reminded here that the Lord hears all of our prayers. And there's an expectation that God hears. We have this trio of verbs in verses one through three that God would give ear, right? That he would consider, that he would give attention. Friends, it should give us great comfort that not only can we go to God in our troubles, but that he actually hears that whatever our condition, God hears. He does not respond to us on the basis of our goodness or on the clarity of our prayers, on if you're a prayer warrior or not, but rather God's attention is drawn to those who have a sincere heart, who would tell him what is truly on their soul's surface. God is drawn to those who are truly groaning for him. So, what matters is not the skill of the prayers, but the honest sincerity of our hearts, and that we go to the Lord at all. But what is David praying about? What is his prayer in the morning? What is he asking? Well, this moves us to a strange and uncomfortable portion of the psalm in verses four through six, and then again in verses nine through 10 where we see God's view of the wicked. These are words that are somewhat uncomfortable. Remember I said that this psalm contrasts two types of people, the wicked and the righteous, specifically the righteous God and the people who are like him. Let's consider the view that God has of the wicked. I feel like I should warn you that there are words here that would make you squirm. It would be very tempting to adjust them. But before we discuss these, let me try to put this in perspective. I'm persuaded that the, one of the main thrusts of this psalm is that David is praying that God would help him make right evaluations of evil. That as he wakes up and as he walks into his day, that God would give him eyes to make right judgments about what is good and what is beautiful. And what is ugly and what is evil. I feel like I should remind you to think about how you make decisions. All throughout the day, you and I are making, I mean, thousands of evaluations. And most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it because we've conditioned our hearts to know what is good and what is bad, what is beautiful, what is ugly, what is pleasant, what is unpleasant. Yet our hearts make thousands of decisions about what is beautiful. And those are the things that you pursue. And the heart also makes decisions about what is not beautiful, and that's what we neglect or avoid. In every single decision that you make, you are choosing based on what you believe is good and what you believe is bad. This is why I avoid decaf coffee, because I know that it is ugly, right? You make decisions based on your evaluations. You realize that everything you do, you do for a reason, right? And that reason comes from your heart. Every thought, every word, every action, every behavior, every inaction, it begins with a desire. In the counseling room, we often summarize it like this You do what you do because you want what you want. All the time. You do what you do because you want what you want. And we want things based according to what we think is good. But here's the problem sin has distorted our hearts. Our hearts, which were made to love and to worship God, to see him in his beauty, have been overcome with lust, which has defiled our hearts. A lust which has led us to become foolish in our thinking. Romans says that our hearts have become dark. Romans 1 tells us that because of this, we have gotten it all backwards. We have exchanged the glory of God the most beautiful thing imaginable, for the glory of stuff, for the things he's made. In other words, sin has twisted our vision of what is beautiful. We see what is evil, and we think it's beautiful. We see what is beautiful, and we think that it is evil, or we can't recognize it as such. I mean, we could give 10,000 examples of this, but one simple one perhaps would resonate with you. This is why you struggle to read the Bible, but do not struggle to watch TV. The Bible, which reveals in its totality the beautiful glory of God, seems boring. And yet, the media, the artifacts of our culture, which glorify evil, seem interesting. How could that not be twisted? Well, that works because we struggle to discern what is truly beautiful. What is it that you think makes the game of thrones or Fox News look more interesting to our hearts than God? It's a demonic propaganda campaign of our enemy who is appealing to the old distortions of our heart. Do you remember what happened to Eve? She saw the fruit and saw that it looked good to eat. She had it backwards. And here in this text, we have numerous statements of how God sees and evaluates the wicked. I'll have to group them together. But you'll notice in verse 4 that God is displeased with the wicked. That those who do sin, that those who do evil, God has no pleasure in them at all. Not even for a moment. Again, in verse 4, we see that God does not dwell with the wicked. We can pick up on this in a couple of phrases. Verse 4 literally says, evil may not dwell with God. And then in verse 5, we read that the evil, the boastful, the proud cannot even stand before God's eyes. The picture here is of those who are evil. How evil? What kind of evil? We might think rapist or terrorist not necessarily. The uh, psalmist extends this even to those who are boastful, verse 5. That those who think too highly of themselves, they cannot even be seen by God. The idea of dwelling here is, is it means that these are the people, these are the kind of people who cannot sojourn, they cannot even visit with God. They can't even venture for a moment into his presence whose eyes are too pure to glance upon evil. Verse 5 says the boastful will not even stand before his eyes. The, The idea here is that prideful people will never get an audience with God. They can not even come before him. They don't get access to him. My wife and I enjoy the Television sitcom or television show, uh, The West Wing, right? A political show. And again and again, you see this idea of, hey, just give me five minutes with the president. Just five minutes with the president. The wicked don't even get five minutes with God, not even a moment. They do not have access to his all satisfying beauty, where life and joy and happiness is. No access. But when you come to the second half of verse 5, we have this phrase, you hate all evildoers. Verse 6 uses a similar word, could be translated the same. The Lord abhors or hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Wait a minute. I thought God didn't hate anyone. My mama told me that. Or what about love the sinner, hate the sin? This phrase raises all sorts of hard questions for us. How do we square something like this with the rest of the Bible, which speaks of a loving God, a God who loves the world? How does the God who so loved the world also hate? Now, this is a question that needs more time to answer completely, but I'm going to try to give you a brief answer This morning. We like to think of God as a simple God, I think, with simple attributes. We can put on posters. But God is not simple. God is complex. The Bible says that God is love, but describes God's love in all sorts of different ways. He's complex. And the same is true when it speaks of God's hatred, Now, without wading too far into philosophy here, which is over my head, I think it's best to think of the person, the human, in two ways. This perhaps is helpful for us. There's a sense in which we can think of a man's essence, right? Where we can think of mankind as one who is made in God's image, right? And, And it's in this way that God loves all of Humanity. He loves all who bear his image. The Lord is compassionate and shows love to all he has made. He gives life. He gives food. He allows it to rain on the just and the unjust. But we can also think of man's function. Not just his essence, but his function. That is, we could think of man in terms of his activity or his behavior. When God speaks of those who do evil... Though in one sense, yes, he loves them as image bearers, there is another equally valid sense in which God hates them. Hear God's word in verse 5. God hates all evildoers. I think it's important here that we recognize that there is something different about God than humans. When the Bible says that God hates, it doesn't mean that he hates like we hate. When humans hate, it is a sinful, emotional, capricious sort of activity. But that's not the case with God, who has holy emotions and perfect control over his emotions. Bible teacher Steve, Stephen Lawson, I think he answers this problem well when he says this, I quote, God rejects all who reject him. What we have in this passage is it's a figure of speech or hebraism that contrasts love and hate with which communicates acceptance and rejection. When the Bible says that God loves, it means that God accepts in a certain kind of way. And when the Bible says that God hates, it means that God rejects. I think that's helpful. And we have to understand that the main idea, what it is here, that we're not getting too hung up on how God hates and loves and miss the main message that God's hatred means that he rejects the wicked. Do you see that? God rejects those humans who, though made in his image, do wickedness. A holy God has nothing but righteous wrath And hot indignation for evil. Therefore, the Bible says God hates the wicked. Verse 6 shows their outcome. God will destroy them. Those who speak lies, those who are bloodthirsty, notice the pattern here, that's whether you murder with your hands, right? Bloodthirsty. Or whether you murder with your tongue, speak lies. God's word says God will destroy you. It's not a message that we like. There's all this other stuff about God we like, but why talk about this? Well, it's at this place in the text that I think we need to highlight two specific points. The first goes back to the fact, remember, this is a morning prayer. And the importance here that David is praying, if we were to consider the whole psalm, is that he wants to see the sinfulness of sin, the vileness of evil, the badness of what is wicked. And in verse 8, he reaches his primary request where he says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. David is saying, I don't want to be like these people. I don't want to be influenced by them. And so he prays that God would help him see the sinfulness of sin. He speaks of how wicked it is. Listen, Christians, listen carefully. I believe God's word teaches us that we need God's help. We need to plead with God to help us discern what is evil so that we can discriminate between what is good and evil. Paul says something very similar in Romans 12. He says, abhor what is evil. It's a lot like hate. Abhor what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. Our Christian health depends in large part on our ability to discern what is beautiful and discern what is evil, and then adjust our lives accordingly. To fill our minds. I'm convinced that one of the reasons the Bible does not resonate with us more is we have spent so many hours filling our minds with the culture that we don't have a taste for it. And as you face a day of trouble each morning, in a world where you're tempted to exercise your anger against what is wrong, as we saw in chapter 4, it is critically important that we learn to call good good and evil evil and let God be the judge. For herein lies the key to the Christian's happiness. It's the key to finding the straight path, the narrow path. But there's another word here, and it's a word of urgent warning. If I could be, for a moment, God's instrument, like a lighthouse that's standing not just on the shoreline, but on the edge of a flat earth, warning ships. Before they fall off, it's a warning for those who do evil. It's a warning for those who have pride in their hearts. For all who, as the prophet says, call good, call evil good, and good evil. This is a word for all who have, like me, committed violence with our mouths. Or, like me, have neglected God in favor of some perverse thing. Or let's just be honest for a minute. Who among us totally escapes unstained these characteristics of the wicked? Who among us is nothing like, ever, like this person that God hates? Are you? Have you ever boasted? Well, you cannot even visit God's presence. Have you ever spoken a lie? God will destroy you. Have you ever deceived others? Have you ever tried to deceive God? God abhors you. So you might ask, Tell me, preacher, who in the history of the world is without such sin? If the Spirit is kind now and if he is giving you a sense of clarity and conviction that you are like this evil man at times, you might ask, who is without sin? What about David? What about the author of our psalm? How can David cry out for justice from a judge knowing that his own life must come under God's scrutiny? That if it did, that he could not stand. Think of it. David, the adulterer, the, bloodthirst, the murderer, the bloodthirsty man, the deceiver. Right? Do you know David's history? Is David just so proud and so pretentious and so self-righteous as to ignore his sin? But it says the boastful cannot even stand before God's eyes. So what do we make of this? Well, friends, David is not ignorant of this irony. And he's not ignoring his own sin. Elsewhere, in another psalm of David, in Psalm 143, David says that in his prayer about wickedness and the evil and for justice, he, he says if he had to, he couldn't stand up to God's scrutiny. Listen to Psalm 143 too. O God, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. This leads every single one of us, whether you're here today persuaded that you are a Christian or whether you are not. It leads every single one of us to pause humbly and to recognize this heavy truth. If God were to try me, if God were to try my case, I too would be hated and eventually destroyed by God. Do you see that? Don't fly past these words on to the fun ones. If God were to try my case, I too would be hated and eventually destroyed by God. So, what gives? to invite you to look down at verse 7. David says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter the place where you dwell. Or look over at verse 11. The scriptures say, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. And then in the same verse, it speaks of those who have God's protection. Friends, I'm glad that I get to be here with you this morning. For just as I have the daunting responsibility to proclaim to you the awful hatred of God's wrath. I almost changed this text this week. I thought, hmm, I chose a wrong psalm. This is a daunting task. But just as I have the incredible responsibility to proclaim God's wrath, I also have the awesome privilege to stand before you and proclaim God's gospel. And so here it is. You are a sinner. And as we have seen, God hates and will eventually destroy sinners. And so we only have one hope for rescue. And Jesus Christ is that hope. Jesus came to earth, and though he never sinned, he never got it backwards, he never called evil good and good evil. He always loved the right things. And yet, he came and he went to a cross. And Jesus became God's enemy. Jesus became sin for us. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe that while God was pouring out his wrath on Jesus, it is right to say, God abhorred Jesus. He despised Jesus so that he could love and rescue you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be destroyed, but have eternal life. The only way that you can be saved from the awful fury of an awesome God. It is not by perfect attendance. God doesn't give a rip that you're at church. That's not anything. You need to get a shield, verse 12. You need to find some refuge, verse 11. You need to secure some protection, verse 11. And the only one who is strong enough and willing to protect you from God is God. The only one able to protect you from the wrath of the Father is the Son. Jesus Christ is the only hope for sinners and I proclaim him to you this morning and in hopes that you will see his beauty amidst a backdrop of the true awful wrath of God. I'd like to invite you to enter with me this morning into a time of response and invitation. And I believe God has two words for those of us who are here this morning. For those who are lost, who don't know the Lord, who are under God's wrath, friends, you must not pretend that your sin is no big deal to God. You can't mock Him. And then for us who are Christians, We desperately need God's help to see what is sinful and to see it as truly sinful. This is a time to respond to God in your heart. And as we sing, I want to encourage you. Lift up your prayer to the Lord and ask him for his grace. Let's sing together. Will you stand with me in a time of invitation?